if you are uh, here and a Christian, and if you've ever tried sharing your faith before, you've likely um, come across some of the misconceptions, the objections that culture has towards Christianity or how they understand Christianity to be. For others, perhaps, though, maybe you've not even felt comfortable engaging in sharing your faith because of some of the questions you anticipate coming up against. I, I won't ask for a show of hands because it's probably unanimous. We know someone who has some of these objections or we felt hesitant in some situations. Um, this series that you're going through, I've been admiring from a distance. It's called In the Room, dealing with some of these elephants in the room, these big kind of defeater questions that culture um, maybe has or think they have against Christianity. If you've missed any of these, I'd encourage you to go back because these are really pertinent, important topics, ones that you've probably thought about, and or if you haven't, they're ones you should think about. Uh, the topic I've been given this morning, I'm excited about, it's that of the literal Adam, science in the Bible. How should we understand our faith in light of science? And this is <clears throat> definitely a topic that I've come up against, that I've encountered as I've shared my faith with others. And uh, unless you want to just bury your head in the sand and ignore it, we, we need to have an answer. We need to have an answer to this in order to know how to understand and engage with some of the questions uh, our culture has around us. Um, this summer, I, I was privileged enough to spend some time in Guadalajara. And while I was there, I was out and sharing the gospel in a public square, and I, I came across this couple from Germany. And... Uh, got into a really good discussion with them, and when the topic of faith came up, they, they said to me, um, they didn't believe in God because they were both committed to the laws of science, and science had disproved God. Science has disproved God, they said. Now, many assume science undermines the concept of a God and, and, and really takes away a rational basis for belief in God. Many students, they head off to university every fall, they, they go to biology 101, and, and they walk away from their faith. They end up ditching it. What we're going to look at this morning is how science does not, in fact, knock out the footings for a rational belief in God. We're going to take a look at um, the Genesis account, answer the question, hey, is this still trustworthy? Um, we're going to look at the topic of a literal atom. I'm really excited, but if you know me, I'm not a scientist, so we need to pray. And um, if you would join me, that'd be great. Father, I just, I thank you for your word. Thank you for your word. Thank you that we get to gather and worship you and reflect on your great grace towards us as we were just singing how wonderful, how marvelous it is. I pray this morning, Holy Spirit, for your empowerment as I, as I seek to unpack this topic. Uh, I, I need you. I'm dependent on you. And so we just invite you and... Um, pray all these things to you, Father God, in the name of the Son, Jesus. Amen. Now, uh, the culture around us, it holds many beliefs that it probably considers to be kind of like common sense notions. They, it, and they, they, they seem at the surface level to render Christianity or the belief in it implausible, irrational. For many in the culture, these beliefs Beliefs have seemed to undermine the plausibility of God, and I'm sure that there are some here, even this morning, you're wrestling through some of these questions. The, the sad part that I have with these situations often is that the thing that throws people off the rails of faith is just that, it's a question. It's a question. I've had 
friends walk away from the faith just because of a question. Questions like, how can God be good and allow suffering? How can there be only one truth? Both of these topics coming up later in the series, so stay tuned for that. Or how can the Bible's depiction of creation and the evolutionary theory coincide? Sort of riddle me that, Batman. And the thing is, is these are really good questions, but they're just that. They're questions. To walk away from the faith or to shut the door on the concept of God because of just a question it is a little silly. A question should provoke further research, study. It should direct a person to seek further answers. And all too often what we see, though, is people walking away from their faith because of questions that have very, very reasonable explanations. And what's even sadder to me, though, is that when people, if they have sought out answers to these questions, they've encountered opposition from the church, the church that they were a part of, maybe, as they brought some of these questions, they were treated as taboo topics. Like, why are you asking that? You should have more faith. Now, I've had situations like that. If you've had situations like that and you're here, just on behalf of the church, on I want to say sorry, because that, that's not the response you should have encountered. Faith in God doesn't require that we shut our brains off, because Christianity is existentially satisfying. Questions aren't taboo. Your questions, they're not taboo. And if, you, if you've been wrestling through um, maybe thinking science has disproved the existence of God or speaking to someone who has, it needs to be heard. These questions are not taboo. Uh, and the couple I was speaking with in Guadalajara uh, let me know they didn't have a belief in anything because science has disproved God. I asked them, um, or first off, I thanked them for sharing their thoughts with me. I said, you know, thank you, I'm enjoying this conversation. But can I ask you a question? Are you a scientist? Are you a scientist? And actually, for the first time ever, they, somebody responded with, yes. Yes, we are scientists. Um, <laughs> so he was a microbiologist, and she was in pharmacology. So, so I said, well, that's great. Great, so then you know what science is. You know what science is. I've got the definition up on the screen. Science is knowledge obtained and tested through the scientific method, if you didn't know. They knew this, of course, because they were scientists. Science is knowledge obtained through the scientific method. So what's the scientific method? Up on the screen, if you were asleep in grade nine math or science like I was, it's, it's behind me for our convenience. The scientific method could have four steps, five steps, eight steps, nine steps, but in, in just it's this. It's you make an observation that posit, awakens a question in you. Huh. So then you form a hypothesis. Well, what could cause that? Let me form a hypothesis. Then you test the theory. Then you analyze the data and you form a conclusion. This is the steps of how science is done. And so I, I said to them, since you've already seemed to have come to a conclusion... Could you share a bit with me about how you came to this conclusion? Now, and I wasn't being cynical at all. Like, we were having a really good conversation. I genuinely just wanted to hear their thoughts because science always begins with an observation. And, and I was curious what led them to, to believe what they'd come to. Maybe, maybe even they'd had a traumatic event. Maybe they'd been hurt by a church. Maybe they'd never really thought it through. I wanted, I wanted to know and... 
want to know the observations and the questions that had led them from their hypothesis to the, to the end result of a conclusion. And I wanted to help them examine it. Because if we don't test our hypothesis, all we have is a wives' tale or a hunch. Uh, this summer, I, was, uh, I took the girls up to the IPE in the interior. It's like the PE, but smaller and for rednecks. It's, it's an interior provincial exposition, lots of farm animals and a rodeo. And so I took the girls up, and on the way, we passed some cows. And uh, the cow was wagging their tail, and Temperance said, Oh, look, it's going to rain. And I said, how do you know it's going to rain? And she said, because the cow's wagging its tail. I said, well, how did you figure, what made you think that? And she said, well, at, at summer camp, one of the counselors told me that. Well, I was summer camp at Westside Church. I was a little unfortunate. <laughs> um, I was like, well, how? You know, maybe, I'm trying to figure, how did they come to this conclusion? Are they just blowing smoke at her? Um, Or maybe somebody was out in their field, and they see a cow wagging its tail, and then it rains. And they go, ah, ergo, when cows wag their tail, it rains. Except for when it doesn't. Except for when it's just a fly biting the cows behind. There's, There's other explanations. You need to test. So science itself dictates that in order for something to be true, it needs to be observable, testable, and repeatable. When someone appeals to science, we gain the right to be scientific with them. We owe it to them, actually, to be scientific with them. And ask, is there perhaps an alternate explanation for the conclusion you've come to? And and this is what I asked them. Is there perhaps another explanation for these things that you've posited? And notice, all I did was ask them to be better scientists. If you've grown up in the Christian community, there's a good chance that uh, you've grown up skeptical of science. For for me, um, I remember entering high school out of being homeschooled as a kid and um, being very skeptical of science and to the point where like, I was like, well, I have to do this to graduate, but I kind of felt like, like foosball's the devil, Bobby. Like, I, I had this attitude towards it, whereas I'll do this, but I completely checked it. It wasn't until my wife went into engineering that I actually started to learn a little bit about science at home. We, we don't need to be skeptical, nor should we be skeptical of science. It's, it's a wrong attitude to have towards it. Of all the people groups, in fact, in the world, we, as Christians, have the most right not to be skeptical of science. And there's three reasons for this. Is one, science exists because of Christianity. If you go back and take a look, the scientific method was developed in Christian Europe by Christian men. Men who believed that the world was made by God and therefore would reflect God as they peered into it. So men like Newton, Galileo, Kepler, Pascal, Bacon, these men were essential to the establishment of, the sci- of science. And there's been lots of ink spilled on this, uh, accusing Christianity of hindering science. Uh, but I, I, I've read the historian James Hannum. He has a book. I've got a couple quotes up on the screen. But he points out that apart from Christianity, 
Um, science wouldn't have developed in Europe at all, and this is a secular historian making these claims, so this isn't me. I'm, I'm not equipped to make big claims about science. I'm, I'm definitely borrowing from this man, and he said this in his book, The Genesis of Science. Given the advantages Christianity provided, it's hardly surprising that modern science developed only in the West, within a Christian civilization. Christianity was a crucial cause of the unique development of Western science. So science, it's not an anti-religious pursuit. It should be engaged with because there is a God. The reason other beliefs uh, didn't initiate science is because the pagan religions of the time, to them, the rocks, the trees, the things that they would investigate and dissect, they were their gods. And so you wouldn't want to be cutting them apart. To Christians, though, these were things God made and that would ultimately point back to him. Another quote from James Hannum, he says, Christianity made science a theologically justified and even righteous path to pursue. Since God created the world, exploring how it works honors its creator. Science became an honorific work. Johannes Kepler, one of the founders of the discipline of astronomy, you know, he has telescopes and satellites named after him. He said science was thinking the thoughts of God after him. This is why Christianity was crucial to the development of science because peering into and investigating the world was thought to be a religious pursuit. Very safe in saying science exists because of Christianity. We don't need to be afraid of it. The second reason we don't need to be afraid of it though is that is because it can only function if there is a God. Early scientists, they began collecting um, rocks and frogs and cutting them apart and getting ice core samples and tree cross sections and magnifying stars and investigating all of it because they believed the world around them was made by God. They believed a God in a God who is consistent in his nature, attributes, and character. So Malachi, there's many, many, many verses on God's consistency, but Malachi 3.6 says, I, the Lord, do not change. Lots of others we could go to. God's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Many, many, many more we could go to. And if you want a fun um, side study this week, go and study the immutability of God. That's the, the theological terminology behind this idea. The immutability of God is that he does not change. He's consistent. And because God is consistent, we should expect a consistency in the things he's created. It's justifiable to expect consistency in everything that we would examine. So they believed the words of Genesis 1 and 2 where it says that God created everything. He took credit for it, including setting the stars in motion, establishing the laws of nature that govern all of creation. They said if God did all of this and he's consistent, that we should expect consistency. Uh, John 1.3 says, All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Now, I'm not trying to turn this into a science history lesson. I'm not equipped to bring that. But what I want to point out is that as the discipline and exploration of science continued, and as it spread, people began to investigate the world 
around them and use the scientific method more widely. And eventually, and quite ironically, they began to try to use science to disprove God. To use the thing that God provided the preconditions for to try to get rid of God. See, science can only function if God created the world as described in the Bible. A world that's created and governed by God could be expected to be consistent. But a universe that's just a result of time and chance happening on matter should not be expected to be consistent. Pure, materialistic, Darwinian, evolutionistic science has climbed atop a wall that Christianity provided they've pulled out a sledgehammer and they're knocking the wall out from underneath their own feet. Paul Davies, a physicist, an instructor, uh, professor in the Straits, and he's authored so many books, but one uh, I'll quote from The Accidental Universe. He says this, to be a scientist, you have to have faith that the universe is governed by dependable, immutable, absolute, universal, mathematical laws of an unspecified origin. I don't know where that came from. You've got to believe that these laws won't fail, that we won't wake up tomorrow to find heat flowing from cold to hot or the speed of light changing by the hour. Science depends on consistency. They trust the laws and rules and constants of math and science will be the same tomorrow as they are today, but they can't provide an account for why this is so. They trust E equals MC square as a constant, but they can't account or really argue for the fact that tomorrow it won't be different. Now, since divorcing itself from Christianity, science has yet to adopt another philosophical precondition that can give it the, the thing it needs even to do what it does. Um, in, uh, i got a book. It's up on the screen. I would recommend this book if you want more information on this. Um, <laughs> The Ultimate Proof of Creation. This is written by a rocket scientist, guided by the name of Dr. Jason Lyle. Super fantastic book. Um, very nerdy, but very accessible, surprisingly. So I would recommend that. And in it, he points out science is stealing a concept from Christianity in order to function. They're worldview kleptomaniacs. They're borrowing from Christianity, but not giving credit to it. Because science exists because of Christianity and it can't function without it, so we don't need to be afraid of it. Third reason we don't need to be afraid of Christianity is because ultimately it's going to point back to God. If you're interested, uh, there's more information available today than has ever been available. You can go online, do research into this on your own. Um, there are many scientists changing their beliefs because of science. Even, not even necessarily coming to faith, but coming into what's called the intelligent design community. There's lots of debate and stuff around this. I only bring this up to say there's lots of information and answers available. If, if, if what you're wrestling with is a question, there's, there is answers out there, and there, there's people in this community that love to walk with you through some of them. Because the Bible says that God actually left behind a forensic trail of evidence, breadcrumbs in the forest, his fingerprint on creation, if you will. Jeremiah 31, 35 says, God gives the sun for light by day and orders the moon and stars for light by night. It's him who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. 
Psalm 19.1 says, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Science is going to point back to him. Hebrews 1, it says, he upholds the universe by the word of his power. As we investigate into what maintains these constants, we're going to discover him. Romans 1 Verse 19 and 20, it says, What can be known about God is plain, because God has revealed it. His invisible attributes, his eternal power, and his divine nature have been, and therefore can be, clearly perceived in the creation of the world and in the things that he's made. Just God's word. So we investigate into it. All we're doing is holding him to it. But at some point or another, we're going to encounter people who whose hang-up to belief in God is some scientific claim. And maybe we're going to wrestle with some of them on our own. Again, that's okay. We need to feel liberty to investigate these, uh, but also be very intentional about engaging those around us who are wrestling through these as well and graciously walk alongside them. Science exists and functions because of God, and we can trust that it's going to point back to him. You've been... um, James has been pointing back to this verse throughout the series, 2 Peter 3.15. It says, In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that's in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. So the Bible commands us to do this. Always be prepared to make a defense. Now, this word defense here, it's actually the Greek word apologia, where we get the word apologetics and also the word apology from. If you know, um, it's a little different than we consider apologies, though. Our, our, our form of apology today is probably more along the lines of saying sorry or repenting. But the word apology actually comes from making a defense, a reasoned defense. So when my wife says, Josh, that's not an apology, the Bible nerd that I am, I know it's, that's an apology. <laughs> she loves that stuff. Um, the Bible, though, says we're, we're to always be prepared to make a defense. We need to research these things. We need to be able to, as questions come up, not just go, oh, I'll turn my brain off, ignore that. The Bible calls us to engage, and there's lots of resources available. A great starting point, again, would be ultimate proof of creation. I've also sent through a list of some YouTube videos, some sites, some articles to James. I don't know how those will get passed along, but you can email him if you want those or me, and I'd be happy to pass those along. There's, there's many questions that can come up, and there's a whole field of apologetics called evidential apologetics dedicated to this, to answering specific questions. So if there's a specific question bothering you, or if there's a question that you know someone around you is wrestling through, I'd encourage you to, to dive in, dive in with someone. If there's somebody who you've been avoiding because you know they're kind of science nerdy and you aren't, call them up, apologize. Say, hey, I know you brought this question or I know you've been wrestling this and I feel bad because I haven't engaged with you. The Bible calls us to always be prepared to make a defense. Now, I want to take a look at one other spe- specific topic before, before we wrap. We've got a little bit to go, but... There's something else I want to talk about here. Um, In my conversation with the German couple in Guadalajara, um, over the course of our conversation, they actually did come to admit, like, huh, no, you're right. Science doesn't provide the preconditions for the ability to do science. 
but they had some concept, because they were German, of, of what Christianity and, and, and belief was about. And so they came back with another question, and they said, how could I as a Christian reconcile the Genesis account of creation, the idea that God created everything in six days, with what science has been revealing about evolution? This, this right here, this is another big, fat elephant in the room. You've probably encountered this. Uh, it's caused many to, to come to disregard the authority of the scriptures, others to walk away from their faith altogether. I've, I've had friends do both of these things, just come to disregard the scriptures, come to walk right away from their faith because they didn't know how to reconcile what they learned in youth group with what they learned in university. So the question is, it's up on the screen, how do we recognize or reconcile the Genesis account of creation with what science has revealed or is discovering and finding? And there's basically two, two approaches that people will take to this. Um, one is you can just deny the evidence that the science community is producing. Sort of put your fingers in your ears and go, la, 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 ignore it. But that is not the right approach. It's a common approach. I took that approach in high school. The second approach, though, would be to, to modify the traditional understanding of how Genesis has been taught. So if you're new, uh, new to Christianity, new to this topic, um, welcome. We're glad you're here. A couple years ago now, I think, we, we did a series here on um, Genesis 1 through 3 called Eden. And we walked through that in great detail. That was such a good sermon series if you were here for that. You can go back and listen to that. It'll answer some of these questions in much greater detail than I'm going to have time to. But the traditional way cre the creation account of Genesis has been taught is that what it says should be taken at face value. God created the whole world in six days. And, and then some have actually went so far as to trace the genealogies in the Bible right up to the present day and would make the case that the Earth's about 6,000 years old. Now, while science agrees that civilization as we know it is about 6,000 years old, they would say that modern man has been around for around 200,000 years, and, and, and our primate ancestors more like 6 million years. So the rub here is, what do you do with, on the very conservative side of the scale, 194,000 missing years? What do you do with that? If this, if this doesn't cause someone to just walk away from their faith, rather try to reconcile that held belief with the Bible, there's really um, two ways that this will be done. One is, is through a, a view called old age, age creationism. And there's, there's many different facets of this. Um, it, it comes in a few forms. The first is that of gap theory. Some would believe that God created the whole world in Genesis 1-1, and then after an undetermined amount of time, came back in Genesis 2 to create further, which accounts for the age of the physical earth that we find in some of the geological sciences. So we got Genesis 1 up on the screen. They would say, it goes like this, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Hard stop. Hard stop. Big gap period. Then God comes back, the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the earth. So some would interpret that there was a big space of time that took 
place within there. And so again, this would account for the geological age of the earth that we find, but not necessarily the anthropological, meaning mankind's age. So then there's other theories. In his book um, called Genesis Unbound, John Salehammer, this is an interesting book, very interesting book if you want to go deeper on this topic. But he points out um, or presents a view where in Genesis 1, we see God creating the whole world, including mankind. Then in Genesis 2, God comes back and creates Adam and Eve. And so he would say there's a whole other race of people. And he makes a case right from the scriptures. He's, he's a language scholar too. It's interesting. I just put it forward to say it's interesting. Um, you know, and what I find interesting is that he makes the case right from the scriptures. And so th- he would say this is why when you see Abe, um, sorry, no, Abel, not Abe, Abraham, Abel, yeah, Abel leaving the garden, it talks about like, He's, he's fearful that other people will kill him. He's saying, oh, that's who those other people are. Others argue, and there's a graph up on the screen behind me, that each of the recorded days of creation actually represents a larger period of time. So literally between, not necessarily between each day came thousands of years, but they would say each day represents probably like an era an epoch of time, large distance of time. So it's not to be understood literally, but referring to um, a a collection or a measurement of time that we can't determine it was literally one day or another. Others um, will argue that the same way God created a mature man, he created a mature earth. So he created trees that were already blooming, producing fruit. Um, the, The chicken most definitely did come before the egg, Trees were mature and therefore had rings in them. There was already a polar ice cap. So this would account for some of the geological age of the earth that we see because there was already ice layers. There was already tree rings. Others, though, will venture out of these old old theories, or not old theories, the old earth theories, into theistic evolution. They'll argue the literary genre of Genesis should not be understood literally. So it's not a literal account. This isn't a science textbook. This isn't a historical account. This is something that we have some freedom to interpret however we want. The the general idea behind theistic evolution is that God designed a universe in which everything would naturally evolve. So he was the cause. He was the big banger behind the big bang. And then things kind of happened on their own. They point out that the order of Genesis 1 to 3, that graph that you just saw up on the screen, actually coincides with um, periods of evolution. So they syncopate the Bible and science and say that there's no modifications needed except for we need to stop believing the Bible literally. And one of the questions that I have for that is, well, when do we stop believing the Bible literally? We can't see any clear demarcation, so why should we begin to interpret it allegorically, and where do we stop? becomes troublesome because people like Paul, people like Jesus, actually pointed back to the literality of a man named Adam. So which is right? How do we know? I want to point you to another book. Another good book is called um, Four Views on Creation, Evolution, and Intelligent Design. Uh, it's it's going to present all four of these few 
these views beside each other, allowed people to argue with one another in a very uh, civil way. Um, They're going to walk through these issues, address the strengths and weaknesses of each. What I will say is that there is a perfectly sound reason to hold to a literal reading of the Bible. There's perfectly valid explanations for these things and believing that God created the heavens and the earth in six literal days. And uh, there's interesting theories put forth by some of the alternatives as well. I, I really enjoy reading John Salehammer and his, his thoughts. Uh, but there is ways to reconcile science and faith and to still see God as the meticulous creator of everything. The problem that I have with any of the views that deviate too far from scripture and the literality of it is that they introduce this idea that evolution played a part in the creation of mankind. And the reason I take issue with this is that if we evolved through natural selection, then death was present. Then actually death is what has birthed us. A long series of, um, if you know about the survival of the fittest, it involves death, and the ones that um, have a, a beneficial or a favorable disposition, they continue on, and the ones that don't die, well, they all die, except for the problem is, is that Romans 5 says that sin came into the world through one man. Genesis 3 accounts for this, and death through sin. And so the Bible doesn't provide an account for sin in the world prior to Adam and Eve. So if Adam and Eve are happening way far down in the evolutionary pipeline, there is a big problem with scripture. Genesis 3, it talks about how sin and then death came in the picture. And if, if it's a consequence of sin, then the theory that we came into existence through a long pattern of death and slow, gradual evolutionary changes It just can't sync with what the Bible says. And not just the first three chapters of Genesis, but much of what Jesus says as well. That said, Christianity would never deny that we we do see evolutionary changes within specific species. That's, though, what is referred to as microevolution. So, yes, there are birds whose beaks have changed shape. But do you know what we don't have is any proof that a goldfish ever became, I don't know, pick a creature, a man. We don't don't see that. That contradicts with what the Bible teaches. But the thing is, is it also contradicts science. Macro evolution, so this whole scale evolution of everything, is a theory that hasn't been proved And if you'll recall, at the beginning, we said science is knowledge that is obtained and tested through the scientific method. This, I would argue that this notion that all of life has emerged through the evolution of a single cell, it, it, it hasn't been observed and it cannot be replicated. So it really can't be called science at all. Not if we're gonna be consistent with terms When analyzed, the idea of macroevolution, where all life emerges from a single cell, it fails on three fronts. First, it undercuts the very foundation of science itself. It denies the one thing that would give it the consistency that it needs in order to be able to function. Secondly, it fails to adhere to the laws of the scientific method. There is fossil evidence for the evolution of individual species, but there is none 
that give us gaps. There's none. And you can go and research this. Some, you've been shown pictures of apes that are like halfway between like man and ape, some humanoids. It's a collection of like many, many, many different bones that's not one person. And so it's very misleading into the fact that make, or making people believe that there's a gap. Netflix has a show called Missing Link. There's no proof for this though. It's come up with a hypothesis and then it made the assumed framework for it, or they, pardon me, they made it the assumed framework for everything they do without testing it. Science hasn't and can't prove that we exist in a closed naturalistic system. It actually has to steal from Christianity in order to function. And the third thing is that it, it fails to produce a system whereby a conversation like this would matter at all. In an article from Time, um, my last quote here, mathematician Amir da Axel wrote, biological evolution has not brought us the slightest understanding of how the first living organism emerged from inanimate matter on this planet and how the advanced eukaryotic cells, the highly structured building blocks of advanced life forms ever emerged from simpler organisms. Neither does it explain one of the greatest mysteries of science. How did consciousness arise? Where did symbolic thinking and self-awareness come from? Observe and repeat it if it's true. What is it that allows humans to understand the mysteries of biology, physics, mathematics, engineering, and medicine? And what enables us to create great works of art, music, architecture, and literature? I would argue, what allows us to even enjoy those things? Science is nowhere near explaining these deep mysteries. He's, end quote. Science can't provide answers for where we came from, but it can't provide meaningful answers for why we're here. This, this ventures out of philosophy, or um, science into philosophy, but um, evolutionary theory, it says that you exist to evolve just a little. That's why you exist. If you have a beneficial... Um, disposition or tendency, great, pass it along. If not, die off. There's nothing in you worth expressing. No reason to do art, to sing songs. You came from nothing and you're going to nothing. Its teaching is that life has no meaning, purpose, and value, and quite frankly, I find it depressing now, if a scientist were to say, well, deal with it, I would say you deal with it and actually try to consistently live that out because to me it looks like you're borrowing a lot of what Christianity can only provide for you. They borrow not just to um, provide the consistency in nature in order to be able to do science, but in order to be able to get through the day, to live as if life has meaning. And the worldview can't account for this concept. And this worldview, when it's truly lived out, is very, very depressing. I want to conclude the same way I concluded my conversation with the couple in Guadalajara. Uh, by extending an invitation to acknowledge and trust the scriptures. The truth of God's word gives our lives meaning says that he formed us intentionally. You're not a cosmic accident. The truth of God's word, it gives your life purpose. 
You don't exist to just evolve a little and die. You're not just stardust colliding with stardust. You are not just a chemical reaction. God made you with purpose. Ephesians says that he created good works for you before the foundations of the world. There is a reason. And yes, there is a purpose to your life. It gives our lives value as well because he breathed his life into us. He didn't just pile together dirt and let the mechanics of the earth take you over. He actually breathed his spirit into you. So there's something in you worth expressing and sharing. If you're an artist, if you sing songs, that's why. There's so much worth and value in you that the Bible says God actually came down and died in order to reconcile you to relationship with him. There's more hope in the Christian worldview than any other worldview can offer. God came down and he took the, the consequence of our sin on himself in order to give us a quality of life that only he could give us, life abundant forever. And that beats the pants off of the alternative. Short church, people need to hear this good news. 60% of our city believes that they are the great, 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 great grandbaby of a bluefin tuna. And that is just depressing. (laughs) I want to close this in a word of prayer. Father, I, I thank you for the, what your word presents to us, that you made us, you came down and formed us. You, did, you, you interacted with the making of man in a different way than you did all the rest of the creation. You, you sarred, the Hebrew says, you, you formed us with your own hands like a potter makes the clay, and then you breathed your life into us and gave us worth and value and dignity and purpose. And I believe that your word will hold true. I thank you that even just at its very foundation, science tells us this. You're real, you're true. And so we just stand in awe of the fact that you're a God who can speak creation. You can speak trees, you can speak mountains, you can speak and things come into existence out of nothing. And that's frightening. It's frightening. But you're a God who's for us. You're a God who came and desires relationship with us. And, and that, that itself is frightening as well. But we know that you're good and that your character, as you've revealed in the scriptures, what we can expect you to behave like tomorrow. And so we know that you're, you're good and you're kind and you're loving towards us and you've demonstrated that in giving your son for us. And so just as we, we come back to worship right now, we reflect back on your character, who you are, who you've revealed yourself to be through your word. Thank you that you're not a far-off, distant God. You're not just some force. You're a person. We pray this as you've taught us in the name of your Son, Jesus, by the power of the Spirit. Amen.